Imagine running an agency without having to do any outbound marketing, going to find customers and drag them in by yourself. You're going to hear the power of channel partnerships and how Michael Burton is structuring his entire agency, his second one doing this and actually using channel partners to help him grow his own client base. You're not going to want to miss this agency exits podcast episode. Welcome to Agency Exits. I'm Raj Jha. I'm here with Michael Burton of Stitch, and I'm actually super excited, Michael, on our call that we did before this one. You talked a lot about channel partnerships, and I'm actually really psyched to talk more about that. But before that, maybe you can just give a little bit of an overview of your background and the kinds of work that your agency does so that people can get a little bit of context. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to be able to talk to, to everyone, talk to you. My background is almost completely in professional services, so a couple of decades in professional services. Most of my time had been professional services embedded, kind of internal inside of tech companies. I got specifically got into the marketing tech space a little over a decade ago with a company called Exact Target. They were acquired by Salesforce. And that actually ended up leading to me being the very first time outside of a, a tech company as a true consultancy in a company called Lev. That was built around the kind of Salesforce marketing cloud space, which ultimately led me to Stitch. Got a great exit with Lev in 2020. And I decided, hey, I wanted to go do it all again. So Stitch is focused on helping marketers get the most out of Braze, which is a, a really not just an up and coming, but a really prominent player in the marketing tech kind of customer engagement space. So we're helping customers, everything from initial strategy, implementation, but more importantly, ongoing services. There's always a next marketing campaign. And we want to be in there working right alongside of our customers and brands as we're helping them get the most out of Braze. So it's a little bit about my background. What I find really interesting about that is it almost sounds too small in a way, right? Because it's so, so targeted to a specific platform and a specific kind of person or uh, avatar customer doing a specific kind of thing. And most of the agencies out there are much more general than that, right? They might run campaigns or do the marketing campaigns, but you're super, super narrow. How did you come to that? Does that come from Lev and some of the background there? And how did you come to that hypothesis and get to run an agency doing that? So I've always had a theory that just having focus was really critical to accelerating growth of a consultancy. And I specifically talked to, about Stitch and Lev being a consultancy and not an agency, because uh, it is fairly common for an agency to be very broad and serving their customers as they have. We flip that really on its head and say, we want to be focused on a specific technology, a particular type of use case, in this case, marketers, which is persona, which is very broad. And I always thought that's going to allow us to go very deep and broad on a very particular type of platform technology. And then on the other side, if you're the channel partner, you then have a lot of confidence. We're coming with a very strong point of view on why we think Braze is the best solution. And as we're going to market with Braze, that clearly is going to create a lot of credibility and trust with each other. It's a lot different if I'm doing Braze and Salesforce and Adobe. Mm -hmm. And if to, to a Braze partner, what is Michael going to be pitching today? Is he really Braze? And I think with us, it's very clear. And that focus allows us to, to zero in on what's like, where are we going to be the best? And I'm mm -hmm. just convinced that is the best way to grow uh, a business. And this is meant to be a growth business for us. It's not a lifestyle business. This is very intentionally about growth. And, and so when you get a customer, they're clearly, they've already selected the platform. 
and we'll go more into the sales process around here, but you're essentially getting prospective customers who already know that they are buying this thing. And then you are the next logical step versus going out to the broader marketplace and having people who know they need a, some sort of solution, but haven't even chosen a platform or technology at that point. Yeah, we you know our preference is to get even a little bit earlier. So the ideal situation is for us to be co-selling right alongside a Braze. So the Braze, so the the prospects may be currently on Salesforce. They may be uh, looking for another marketing tech platform. They may not be, and we want to be even very early in the process with the Braze team and helping them best position the Braze platform moving forward. So we think it's really critical for us to be in there and be a value to the Braze seller that ultimately will believe, we believe will lead to more opportunities for us versus just waiting till the end once a customer raise and said, okay, now they need another partner. We want it to be like, it's, there's no question, right? Stitch has been there since the very beginning. This just mm -hmm. makes sense for us to continue to, to partner with them. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's really interesting. So let me rewind a little bit and maybe you could tell me a little bit about your experience at Lev because I think it's, it's a very different kind of journey that you had than many folks who start an agency from cold, which is more like what you're doing at Stitch, but you came into it and then you had a bunch of learnings, we'll say, and maybe you can share some of those about yeah. slotting into an existing team because definitely there's a, there's a folks who start and then there's this theme out there in the marketplace, oh, just go buy something and start that way. And, and maybe you can talk a little bit about the, since you've done both, the, the difference between the two and some of the learnings on that. Yeah, my I was inside of the internal services team at Salesforce. And the, they are very pro partner. They're like, they want to have a co-selling motion. And for me, I thought, Hey, this is the first time where, why don't I go out and be outside of Salesforce? And that ultimately led me to, to be at a company called Lev. You're right. I was not the CEO. I was not the co-founder. And my original thinking was, I have this idea to build a Salesforce marketing focused consultancy. Let me go where there's already a footprint. There's, I, I don't, I'm not thinking about the uh, spinning up a business, doing checking accounts, everything that's required to get a business up and running. And I thought, hey, this would be a great way for me to hit the ground running. And mm -hmm. then I just, I plug into it. And that was really my thinking. And that's how it, you know, that's how it started. And I think from the, that period of time, I think it, just from the context of starting a business, I would say, that was way harder than starting a business from scratch. That, I did not, I didn't fully understand that. And there's reasons why, because you're inheriting, like eventually I become the CEO, which I'm happy to talk through that process, but you are inheriting the other business, right? There's already certain behaviors that are in place. There's so much going on there. And so there's a tremendous amount of change management that you didn't quite predict, mm -hmm. which that change management was actually a whole lot more effort than it, what it would take to start up a business. So after we had the, the exit, and I thought, I really want to go do this again, and I, but I want to be, I want to create it from scratch mm -hmm. and see how it compares. So now I'm a little more than a year in, and I can definitely, it is, I'm not saying it's easy. Nothing is easy when you're doing right. this, but it has been a lot easier for me uh, just to start it up because I'm like, I'm really, you're owning it, and there's a whole lot less change management involved. And was that change management culture, process? What about it was so difficult? Because from the outsider's perspective, it's, oh, they already have customers. They're already doing stuff. I'll just tweak it. 
or maybe do some better marketing or do some things like that. So what was so difficult about that? I, I think it started with the type of work. Like they, the original lab was focused more on uh, what wasn't most of the business was not even Salesforce. So it was mm -hmm. sugar CRM, mm -hmm. a little bit of Salesforce CRM. And then I'm coming in with Salesforce marketing, which is really a separate platform you know, mm -hmm. through an acquisition of exact target. And so even the, the type of customers that we were selling to, like the, the buying profile was different. The type of work was different. So it was not as easy a thing. We'll go plug into these customers because they were selling to a completely different buyer. Mm -hmm. And so there was no direct connection there. So that was difficult. The culture aspect, like just you're bringing anytime someone's coming in new from the outside and is focused on being aggressively growing, there's just natural tension. Like I, mm -hmm. I understand completely why there is. So culturally, there was a challenge. And then we, all the things that I thought would be beneficial as far as the systems being set up and so forth, really didn't meet the needs. So great. Now you've made it even worse because you have to break down what was already there and put new right. systems in. And you've just doubled and tripled the amount of work it would have taken from just starting from scratch. Especially in the services business where you can start from scratch relatively lightweight. That's right. Exactly. Uh, so, so tell me about the journey to CEO, because you mentioned that in, in passing, because you didn't come in as the, the top dog. Um, what did that look like and how did that, how did that come to be? It, so it ended up being a very natural process. So we came in with a new focus, which was Salesforce for marketers. That was something new for Lev. And it, at the same time, Sugar CRM was relying less and less on partners. So mm -hmm. Lev at that time was a reseller of Sugar CRM as well. So that train was starting to stop both on the opportunities coming to Lev and then the reseller model. And so it really meant that something had to go change in the business. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, it was at the same time that I was coming in and saying with someone that came in really early with me at Lev, his name's Bobby, who's my co-founder at Stitch now. We felt like, all right, we don't really have anything in place. We got to go figure this out. And we, we learned a lot about ourselves and where we were strong, where we have strengths in the space. And mine is opening up new channel partners. Channel. Mm -hmm. And so the business just naturally, organically went to focus on this new strategy. So I was hiring the team. This is where the growth of the business was happening. Cash was coming in. And the CEO who hired me to come into Lev, Doug, I think we had very open conversations about, hey, I would like to become the CEO. Doug mm -hmm. saw where this was moving and understood that this probably was the right decision for everyone involved. Mm -hmm. And it was you know, a great outcome for Doug as well. So it was, it really just over time just naturally became the kind of the made sense for the whole business. Mm -hmm. uh, it was an easy transition between the, the two of us. And that's how I eventually became a CEO. And, and that, as you would know, it's, it doesn't, it didn't happen overnight. Like we had this right. plan for some time and thought through a transition plan on how how and when it would work best. Mm -hmm. And if you could share anything about how does the equity work in that situation? You've got one kind of corporate structure with one ownership pie, and then you're coming in and now you're taking the helm and it's going to be something very different. And as time goes on, an increasing percentage of the success of the business will be attributable to you. How did that work? A lot of it came down to the structure of, of how any type of exit would benefit would be a percentage of the overall valuation. So yes, I had equity and options in the business, but I also had an incentive to drive the highest valuation for Lev over time. 
So mm-hmm. I was more and more successful being driven by Salesforce Marketing Cloud. Ultimately, at the time of exit, that would directly benefit me as well. So that's mm-hmm. how we structured it and how I was so incented to continue to grow this. Um, I did not expect that we would exit as quickly as we did and at a kind of high figure. So I think that was it still is, it's an incredible success story. We had a lot of fun doing it because it really was from, I came in April of 6, 2006, and we formally closed on our deal with Cognizant. And mm-hmm. like a, a process to exit doesn't just happen in, in a month. So there were months yeah. before then. So it happened in a fairly condensed period of time, but I had an incentive to make sure we were driving the highest valuation possible. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, that's super interesting because it was it meant that you had that discussion very explicitly about what is the entity going towards and then rigged your compensation towards the outcome that aligned everybody. So note for anyone who's thinking about doing that, mm-hmm. opening it up so that the incentives are aligned allows you to get that piece of the action, as it were. Yeah, it worked. And I definitely yeah. was a, a, a driver for me. I was constantly thinking about how do we maximize this business and have it efficiently running because thinking about next, it actually just ends up making you run a better business. That's why I was, I'm thinking about that all the time. Yeah. It's position for the future. Yeah. As I often say, even if you never want to sell, build it like you're going to sell because you will end up with a business that you don't want to sell. That's ultimately the, something someone wants from you is going to have all the attributes of a kind of thing that you're going to want to keep. So there's no reason not to put your M&A hat on from day one. Yeah. So you mentioned incentives and I, on our initial call, I thought you had some really interesting things to share about sales and sales commissions and how you've dealt with that in the past. And I think this is one area for anybody in services, especially if the sales are founder led, that is a real sticking point getting from founder led sales to having a sales team, because that's one of the the keys to scale and one of the blockers to scale very often. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how you thought through that and some of your experiences there, because I think it's super valuable. Yeah, I, I would say this is one of the areas where we just we continue to make a lot of mistakes at my prior consultancy, where we just we couldn't quite fine tune what is the right, what does a seller even look like in a services business? We struggled with that like almost weekly. And then mm-hmm. what is the right profile and where do you find those people? One of the, I think one of, in, this is a reminder, I might recognize, like I don't come from, I don't represent every type of services business, but specifically like our business is we are running it. We're adjacent, we're tech adjacent. We're, we're connected mm-hmm. to another technology company. And what I've just accepted over time is that that in that situation, when you're working to help a prospect become a customer, the tech company already has many sellers. I mean, mm-hmm. they've got an account executive, they have an SE, they have the sales director, the, that person. There's so many different sellers. And I thought like the best way for us to scale in the past was let's hire account executives as well. And they'll help close mm-hmm. these deals and process them. And then we'll give them technical support as well. And then you just realize, wow, your, your cost of sales are really high now. Because mm-hmm. you have all these people that are connected to the, that deal. And everyone wants to, as you close the initial net new logo, they want some piece of the ongoing that's coming from that customer, understandably, because right. they invested a lot to get the initial deal done. And we just realized like that's that model didn't work. And I was like, why doesn't it work? It's because mm-hmm. the last thing that prospect needs, they need someone that actually understands how to solve their problems. Mm-hmm. So they need someone that 
has more of a delivery background and experience as a consultant, even on the customer side. And over time, that's where we realized like our best sellers really didn't look like sellers at all. Mm-hmm. And we've taken that model here to stitch and saying, really, the way that this will work is bringing someone that's going to have value. Like to us, there's less value in the sales process itself. Like we can help teach, teach that, you know, how to mm-hmm. negotiate, what to look out for in the PSA, like what are the steps right. to close. But it's much harder to teach how do you actually add value to that marketer on the other side. And so that's where we spend and that's really where we, how we thought about how sales looks for us over time. That's really interesting because it's almost as if a consultative product needs a consultative sale and a transactional product needs a transactional sale and you're more to the consultative side. There's an existing more transactional sale happening on the software side, but the missing link in that is the angst of the customer that they're actually going to get a solution out of the software. And that's where you can really fit in and do that consultative selling, it sounds like. Yes. And that kind of goes back to my one of my points a little bit earlier. That's why it's important for us to be involved as early as possible mm-hmm. as we're working with a prospect. So we're positioning ourselves already as that value-add consultant. That's a win. It's almost mm-hmm. like they're getting a whole free salesperson and team behind them mm-hmm. to grow that customer over time, reduce churn. And then we're setting the stage as we're being high-value um, we are being consultative versus if they had already decided to go with Braze, we're at the very end, and mm-hmm. then they want to sign some services. That becomes very transactional, and that's mm-hmm. not where we want to be. Okay, that's interesting. So maybe maybe you can talk a little bit about how that structure works now with the channel sales, because you've got salespeople, and they're selling, and there's another party selling the software, the software vendor, whoever's doing that. Maybe talk a little bit about how it works, and then I'd love to dive into how you thought about setting that up as a channel instead of just a series of one-off events. Because my experience with channel sales, I did run partnerships a long time ago for a software company, is it's easy to say, I'm going to sign some partners, and then it's really complicated to actually sign them and then especially be successful for the long term. I think it's underappreciated. I'd love to, to hear your thoughts on that. So I, and I'd say this, that's, pretty, that's very common where I run into tech companies who think signing up a lot of partners, like it's just signing them up, mm-hmm. that's success. Hidden metric, that's not success. Like what success is signing up partners who are helping deliver customer value or helping you close ACV or reducing churn. And that's what a partner ecosystem looks like. Now, mm-hmm. it just happens... To, I think with, with our approach, we have experience and we have the delivery experience. Like we know how to scale delivery. I had mm-hmm. that before Lev. You grow a delivery team to meet demand over time, which is challenging as is. Mm-hmm. And then I think for me, what I found is that I didn't really, have, I didn't know I had this in me, but I'm actually very strong at building out that, that partnership, that alliances. So the way that we structure this and our, our thinking is, we, we want to have cover as much surface area as possible with our tech partner. Like the, mm-hmm. the more places we touch, because everyone always thinks you just touch the sales team. No, you have to be everywhere inside that mm-hmm. tech partner, marketing, sales, customer success, renewing, you know, renewals that are out there, mm-hmm. the BDRs, you name it. Like we want to touch mm-hmm. everywhere. So the way that we structure this is my primary responsibility when it comes to the alliances side is that 
I'm running point. So I'm the one that's maintaining a lot of senior level relationships across sales and the executive team and so forth. Then we do have another director of alliances <clears throat> that helps with the day-to-day work. So there's mm-hmm. this whole team that's just supporting the partnership. Plus our marketing is all centered around our partner. Mm-hmm. We are not driving many leads outside of our relationship with our tech partner. So therefore marketing my time and alliances is all about driving awareness, what we're doing, how we do it, thought leadership. And then we have sellers then as we're opening up these relationships with the particular selling segments. Now it's a lot of cases, Mm -hmm. it's either vertical based or it's geo based. And then those sellers are then working more in an account executive level. So once you're driving all that top top line awareness, then it becomes more organic as our teams are working directly with our tech partner account executive. They build up those relationships over time. Mm -hmm. And the the theory is you have more of those touch points that you become really indispensable to that tech partner. Right. So instead of focusing on chasing hundreds of individual customers and specking their needs, and which most agencies do, you really go very deep on one partnership and you're staffing multiple people to ensure success of your partner, which drives long-term relationship there. It's a much longer-term investment than the transactional, I don't necessarily say it's a transactional sale, but the onesies, twosies that most agencies are going for. Uh, yes. And that's, we just think, and maybe it's just, I don't know any better, which is that's what has worked really well at Lev. Mm-hmm. And I admittedly didn't have this grand idea of how it was going to work at Lev. Mm-hmm. I just realized we had to go make it work somehow. Like we wanted the business to grow. I brought people in with me. We had to go figure it out. We felt like this is a repeatable play that like maybe we talked about. I'm surprised. I'm always surprised that more people don't have this type of focus and go after mm-hmm. a channel partner because it can. I think people are worried that you have too much concentration in that type of partner. Mm-hmm. But in my view, it's where you're going to grow these customers over time. It helps mitigate some of that risk. But it is really that simple, like I'm going to go all in. And Mm -hmm. my customer in this case is my tech partner. My number one Mm -hmm. customer for Stitch is Brace. That's really fascinating. Now, And if someone wanted to, is now selling direct, but they have the potential of a partner, how do you start? How do you cold start? Do you as the founder, executive, go out and just start those relationships and then juggle a bunch of balls until you can hire all of the support staff that you need to support that relationship. What's the path to getting there? Because I think since people don't know about it, it might not be, it might be struggling with how do you make this real? It, 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 so it takes a little bit of investment, but you're not hiring an army of people. So I always think about it. You can get started. I think ideally with two, two people, I one mm-hmm. one is difficult, but the if, if I'm thinking about this, let's say I do this again tomorrow, starting brand mm-hmm. new. That's the, exactly how I would do it. Is I'm like I'm the one that's running point, so I'm the mm-hmm. one that's then working with more of the partnership side at that tech partner. I'm wanting to understand how they work with partners, and there's a set of questions I have to understand. What does their internal services team look like? How mm-hmm. is their growth rate? Who is in the space today? What's their attach rate? on their opportunities to partners. I'm like, I'm investigating. Mm-hmm. And as I'm doing that, I start to reach out to like, all right, who are some of the key people outside of the partnership team we should start getting connected to? Ultimately, mm-hmm. my goal is to get to connect to probably you know, two to three sales leaders. And from there, 
that's when right i've got maybe another person that's like a seller it's like my mm -hmm. ideal person that's then starting to take those opportunities that are directly coming from the partner and mm -hmm. then you know you as long as you're doing great work and delivering people will call back and you continue to drive awareness so it does not require a huge team to start this mm -hmm. and there's some very basic questions you can dig into to understand is this the right partner for me or not and the specificity of stitch you are just really dealing with one tech platform makes it easier to open those doors. Would it be significantly harder if you've got a more generalized agency trying to do this? Does that specificity required or is that just a, an accelerant? I don't think it's required. And it's, I mean, there are plenty, if you look across all kinds of tech companies, that there are more generalists that are there. Mm -hmm. I will personally position and stitch against those kinds of companies a lot better, I think, of course. as far as being able to be very deeply into the business. But there are clearly, there are plenty of GSIs that are in tech partners and they have a, GSIs have a very broad service offering that they have. So I don't think it's a requirement, but I think if you're thinking about building a high growth consultancy, having that focus gives you a benefit. No whether no whether if you're tech adjacent or whatever, yeah. if you have a very specific industry play, maybe it's technology specific, there's all kinds of ways that you can zero focus down besides just being tech adjacent and being successful. Mm -hmm. So I do think mm -hmm. that those that have the most focus will have the highest growth. And I'm mm -hmm. confident will influence um, significantly more ACV than those that are more generalist. And how, how do you comp your people on that? Because if you're a traditional agency and you're going outbound to clients, you've got a certain commission structure. How does that work in this world? Is it the same kind of thing because they're driving the same kind of revenue and the expectations are the same? Or is it more, since it's so consultative, is it more business development style where they tend to have a fatter salary and commission tends to be lower? How do you, how do you commission? I, it's some. It's actually somewhere in the middle there. So like we're there. There's still. Mm -hmm. It's typically we target more fifty fifty when we think mm -hmm. about base to variable. But you have there's no cap on how much you can be earning as a salesperson. But we can typically operate fifty fifty. Mm -hmm. And it is we do that because we still think that there should be considerable upside because it's it is it's not easy to sign a, the initial PSA. And I think right. what's What's harder for our world is that you're also dependent. So this is the downside to what we do. Now you're dependent on in that new logo as you're co-selling alongside mm -hmm. your tech partner. So then there are some things that are outside of your control. Like you, you are, you've, you have, and that's, I think that's another reason why we want to be co-selling early with a partner is mm -hmm. it helps us influence it a little bit more, but it is difficult. It is very mm -hmm. difficult to get into that new logo for those reasons because there are some things you cannot control and signing a PSA is difficult. Admittedly, where I don't think we have this quite figured out yet, it's still a relatively early stage company at Stitch, is what's the pr proper balance between net new and the existing business? And right. how do we want to grow? Because that existing business is very important to our long-term success. And mm -hmm. how do we make sure we're growing that without losing focus on what's coming in from the channel to us? Right. It's so front-loaded because there's so much that goes into starting the relationship with the new logo, but you there's no dollars associated with that initial work. And then you hope that it's going to accrue over the long term as they have more engagements that they're bringing you into. So it just seems a little tricky for a 
person who is commission-based to fully realize the value of a lot of the upfront work. But from a cash flow perspective, that means it's a bigger chunk coming out of your, your margin as it goes on in time. Yeah, one, one of the things that we, we incent on, we currently incent on invoice. I'd made a mistake in the past by incenting based off of bookings. And that was short-sighted, so I've continued to learn over time. And we are incenting our teams to also get prepayment. Prepayment, bringing in more cash in the door. They're mm-hmm. getting paid faster as well. It helps accelerate. More. The invoicing is also making sure that we're delivering on time and on value. And since the salesperson to continue, we call them salespeople, we call them solution leads, mm-hmm. continues that the person who closed the opportunity continues to be involved as consistency in driving it. So there are some mechanisms that we put into place to also say, yes, it's going to take some time to get your mm-hmm. initial deal. But once you start building up that pipeline, and as you kind of work to help us get prepayments, there's a significant financial benefit that starts really generating for you mm-hmm. and, and call it six months. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. And would you say that it's true? I would suspect it's true, but you'd be the expert on this, that because you're co-selling with a partner and the software partners are very often taking a bigger chunk up front that you can get prepayments easier than other kinds of services businesses. Very often, it's very hard in services to get prepayments. It's very often in arrears and then they sit on you net 60 and then they might or might not pay you. Is it yeah. easier in this kind of situation so your cash flow characteristics are better? I will say... It was easier in prior years mm-hmm. to do that. And now in today's current kind of macroeconomic conditions, it is harder. It is significantly mm-hmm. harder to get prepayment, even riding alongside of a tech partner. Mm-hmm. And so we are getting them. We are not getting them as freely as they were before. And the way that we think about this is just trying to run the business, because you're right, everyone wants, everyone's holding on to cash and they want to stretch mm-hmm. terms. So we're working on, okay, let's talk through what are the levers that we can pull, right? If you for prepay at 50%, let's look at this type of rate. Mm-hmm. If you're paying in arrears, we're going to look at this type of rate. Mm-hmm. These type of terms, ideally, like we start at net 15. That's what in mm-hmm. our, con- like, that's our starting point is net 15. We want to get most of our opportunities down to net 30. And so when we get pushed beyond net 30, how do we pull on some of those other le- levers? So that's, that is a, uh, harder game to play right now mm-hmm. than it has been over the last call it seven years or so for sure i don't mm-hmm. I, like i i recognize that is a lot more difficult to do now yeah interesting are, are you seeing any um effect on your business because of the seat contraction that's happening at a lot of these tech partners that definitely their their customers are downsizing so the number of seats that are typically being licensed from SaaS platforms is declining are you seeing that affecting what you're doing or mostly you're dealing with a solution at a super high level. So it's necessary infrastructure regardless. Yeah, it, it's more the latter, but I mm-hmm. also admit what makes this cloudy fat, this business we didn't formally launch until last September, and we're in an ecosystem where they didn't have a lot of stitch-like companies mm-hmm. and like that motion with partners. So we've had a lot of significant interest directly coming from the Braze channel that. For me, like the business is growing really well, mm. but you know, I think I would almost have to have a five-year history with Braze to see is this macro trend impacting the business or not. I just don't have that kind of clarity right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. One other thing I'd love to chat with you about is hiring, especially hiring 
hiring for experience versus promoting from within. At Lev, you certainly had to do that as you turned the battleship towards, towards something new. And then now as you're growing something from scratch, there's a couple of dynamics in hiring that are very difficult in service businesses. That is, you hire too late and you're going to drop the ball on service. You hire too early and can, you're not sure if you can afford it. And then who do you hire, right? What's the worth of someone who's done this before versus trying to incent someone internally to step into a role? How do you think about those aspects of, of growing? So on the thinking about experience versus less experience, you have to have a mix. Everyone needs to have a good mix of talent. You can't always just, not everyone, we're, we're not McKinsey. We have to have a certain level of mix in the business. And we don't want to be the most expensive in the space that we play in. We want to be able to drive and that new business. So right now we think about it as kind of one senior person for every three less experienced people mm -hmm. that are then working alongside of the senior person you know, they're adding value very quickly. They're participating in customers. You know, they're not riding the bench, but they also don't. They've got someone to follow and be able to have a mentor. So that's mm -hmm. how we're thinking about it in our, our current state. Mm -hmm. That that pyramid will probably get wider on the bottom as we continue to grow and develop our team. the The other part and is the tricky part that we're and I would say we we talk about every single week, which is the timing. Like, how mm -hmm. do you best time? We have a model that we have in place, and it's based off of looking at the bookings that we expect to come in, what's the rep, what's the earn rate, what's capacity look like, and all that. Then it's obviously tied to cash flow when we expect to start invoicing and receiving cash. And that is that right now, we're moving from kind of a startup to now trying to scale quickly, it keeps me up at night because, mm -hmm. like, we're hiring. Or there is no bench, so we don't. We, there is no bench as the way that things are happening right now, and we're looking at that model every day and talking as a team. Myself, the person that's up our, our main seller, our recruiter, our mm -hmm. HR person. We just hired a COO because we think that's an important investment for us to be like monitoring how do we get this right? Mm -hmm. Because there are times when you can look at that and say, "We'll say we need to hire." 11 people in the next 30 days. I'm like, 11 <laughs> people in the next 30 days? How do we really make this happen? But that is a, it at this stage of where Stitch is, and, and even Lev, when we were in the several hundreds, it was, uh, in that case, it was still a weekly process. But for us, it's every single day mm. evaluating that. I, what mm. I also told someone is difficult for us right now, and it makes sense when you, when you say it, but I just didn't really think about it, is like, because we're hiring because we're signing so many new logos. It's not like customers are falling off. Like when you've been around business for years, you expect some certain customers will fall off. And you're right. thinking about that team is going to go staff on another new customer. We don't even have that. Mm -hmm. So as we're hiring, we're staffing on these new projects. So this is why we built our model that's factoring in what's happening. So it's looking at everything from how much pipeline we're adding to the win rate to the time to close, to our capacity, to therefore say, you should at this point need to hire base, mm -hmm. this number of people. And that's how we're managing it almost on a daily basis right now. Got it. And the senior hires, you mentioned the COO, that typically is a very expensive hire if you're going to get somebody with a lot of um, chops versus promoting a director of ops or someone who's filling that 
that role currently. How do you think about that in, in a services context? Because that role can mean very different things for different organizations. For some, it, it really truly is a, an operation like a president COO type of role. But it's tough, I think, in a services business to, to time that because it's either too small and they're used to larger organizations or you wait too long and then the founders are doing that. How, how do you think about that, that problem? So in this case, for us specifically, this is someone that's a bit of a CFO slash COO. Mm -hmm. So when I look at it from how our business is quickly growing and the importance of paying attention to terms, invoicing, collection on our AR, looking at a line of credit against our AR, which we do not have in place, which we know we will have in place moving forward, mm -hmm. it would be a, a, piece, a piece of our strategy. It, I looked at it and said, I, I, if I went back to my love days, I would not have made this investment at this time. And yeah. I've realized now at Stitch, when I didn't make those, I did a couple of things wrong. Love, I would make, I would, I waited too long to make that key hire like that, and then I typically would hire someone that wasn't at that level yet. So there was like a certain mm -hmm. role, but they were like maybe one or two roles or in one or two years away from being that role because I thought, mm -hmm. hey, this person can move into that role. And I look back on it now and say, I made some bad decisions because of that. Mm -hmm. So now I'm very aware of saying, Michael, you need people that have been there and done. Mm -hmm. Make the investment early. If you have confidence in your strategy, really execute, you will figure it out. And so that's all that's really in the back of my head right now. You wrote something uh, maybe a few months ago when I saw it. Uh, as a CEO and co-founder, you have to make a decision. Is this a growth? Are you going to grow this business or is this a lifestyle business? And if you're going to go grow the business, you cannot be in the business every day. You cannot be mm -hmm. delivering for customers. You cannot be out there selling them every day. Your focus is how are you going to grow this business? In mm -hmm. And so I've, I've really taken that to heart, thinking about how do we grow this business? Because this is a growth story. Therefore, I'm going to need help. So I'm always now thinking more making that investment earlier than I think I should and bringing in the people that are a lot better than me to get that job done. So you, your role really is a true CEO role, which is to be the leader that gets the best out of a team of A players or folks who are actually getting the thing done and putting all the test pieces on the table versus getting your hands dirty. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's it's then I recognize where I'm not strong. And mm -hmm. I have people like Bobby, my co-founder, who is just incredibly um, wonderful at working with customers and having them see the vision, helping both Braze win and Stitch win. And mm -hmm. I can go across the whole team. Like these people are way better at recruiting or way better at the finance side of it. Mm -hmm. And I just have a lot of confidence that we'll go continue to deliver, even though it puts a crunch on cash. And we just, yeah. that's just reality making that kind of investment. So, so when uh, th this is a very interesting thing because you've gone through the uh, growth and acquisition process once with Lev. Now you're doing it again, and growth sucks cash. So you are going to have low margins as you staff up and you hire that. But at some point, because it's a service business, because it's going to be valued on EBITDA and not on top line revenue, you're going to have a decision to make about when do you intentionally stop snowballing at low margin and start to fatten out that margin in anticipation of getting acquired. How do you think of that, that problem? I'm confident. Well, there's a couple of things. 
there are definitely player spaces and, and this would be a love story that it was based off of top line revenue. Mm-hmm. I think that there are segments of services businesses where there is not enough capacity, there's not enough consultants who are in a certain sector that's high demand mm-hmm. that will yield valuations on top line. And so I mm-hmm. still see services businesses. And frankly, I think that Stitch is very much in that space to be potentially positioned as top line. So there are places where top line is still looked at, admittedly less and less, definitely less now than was it would have been four or five years ago. But I still think about one of the things I took away is, hey, how do we become more profitable faster? And mm-hmm. my thinking, I learned a lot of this through the process of exiting with, with Lev, is not a, smart, not a smarter business. I look at it more, it's, I, I don't look at it over the next six months how I'm thinking about where are we going to start becoming very profitable is when we have this install base of customers. And because we're working with marketers who have recurring needs, that mm-hmm. the goal here is for 80% of our revenue to be more in ongoing services. In that scenario, there's a whole lot less costs related to extending those renewals, supporting those mm-hmm. customers. And that's really where I'm confident that we'll see significant improvements in our overall profitability as that install base of customers grow. But mm-hmm. really right now, I'm very focused on, we need to grow new logos. We need to continue to invest in those opportunities. And know mm-hmm. over time, with more recurring revenue, we'll be in a better position longer term on the, on the EBITDA side. That's great. That's very thoughtful in that way, right? You're almost mimicking the SaaS model in a way, right? It takes a while to get no that way. ball rolling and then got a nice hunk of MRR that you're sitting on every single month. Yeah. And they can be strong gross margins, even without mm-hmm. leveraging offshore, like you can still build a very strong gross margin business in the services space. Like I'm seeing that before mm-hmm. at Lab, we're seeing that here at Stitch. So it's just a matter of get that install base up and running and then we'll be in mm-hmm. great shape. Perfect. But before we wrap up, I'd love to hear a few of your thoughts, notes to your former self, perhaps, whether that be when you first took over at Lev, whether that be the things you've learned even in the relatively short journey so far in Stitch, anything that someone listening here might be able to say, shortcut some of the painful learnings uh, would be wonderful if you could share. Yeah, some of these I've said, but a couple of these are maybe a little bit different. I do think that Starting a business is less daunting is less daunting than you probably think. And if you're you have this idea, you want to go build a consultancy or an agency, it is very doable. You can bootstrap it as well as doing it with an investor. You can make it happen. And I and I wish I think I wish I would have known that before. I, I think the live outcome was fantastic, but I wish I always tell so many people I had coffee this morning with someone and said, Why are you not starting a sales referring cloud partner? Go do it. <laughs> Here's how you go do it. I think the second thing I had, I never imagined, I never thought I wanted to be a CEO. That was mm-hmm. never in my mind. And I think some of it was because I had this perception of what a CEO had to be. I'm an introvert. That's, I've always been an introvert. I've accepted that's who I am. And I've always had this thinking that a CEO looks very different than me. Very outspoken, very bold, big risk taker. And those perceptions were wrong. And mm-hmm. I always say to people, like, the, C- the CEO can be so many different types of skill sets. You just mm-hmm. have to accept, do you want to accept every single aspect, responsibility for every aspect of that business? And if you do, 
then you can be successful by really surrounding yourself with other people that maybe cover we are not as strong, just like mm-hmm. I have. And I'm bringing people that are really much better at selling to a customer than I am. And I don't think I would have had the confidence to say that 10 years ago, I would have been embarrassed. Like, what kind of CEO can would say that? That's impossible. Right. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So I think that's it. And then the other thing that I, it does, it's actually, I'll say two more things is hiring people, making investments early and key hires. And then I think the other big lesson learned that I've made the mistake several times and I've seen other companies make this as well, especially if you get further in your career and you think about, hey, someone played this role for me at Lev Mm -hmm. at this point in time. I'm going to go ask them now, seven years later, to play that same role today. Mm-hmm. It's always, you're always feeling like that's a good thing to go to because you, you've done it together. Mm-hmm. And that's, I'd say more often than not is a mistake because that person has changed. Mm-hmm. They have different desires. They have different ambitions. And when you try to force that to, that magic to happen like it did in the past, it often fails and often fails because everyone is different. So just mm-hmm. accept that. Be really cautious of that. I've caught myself. I've made that mistake even at Stitch. I catch myself every month thinking about, wow, yeah. And I realize like that's that, that often doesn't work. Right. That's very thoughtful. I think your definition of CEO and leadership, not having to be an, ex- uh, an extrovert, speaking as another introvert, is a really important one because I think half half the world is like us. And if you just embrace the fact that it's about leadership and it's about getting the best performance out of other people, helping them become better. And you just happen to be enabling them to do. I think that reframe has certainly helped helped me a lot. Same here. I feel way more confident about myself. And now I'm I'm very vocal about sharing the benefits of being an introvert with the world. Yeah, exactly. Introverts unite, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, I don't know what kind of club we'd have, but. Be a little quiet. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Great, Michael. That's this has been wonderful. Maybe you could tell uh, folks where they can find you, what kinds of things you're interested in partnering with people about, and tell them a little bit about all that. I'm very active on LinkedIn. We didn't talk about it today, but I'm a big believer of the power of founder brand that mm-hmm. really helping can accelerate your growth. So, if you're interested in seeing how we how I talk about founder brand, how we use it to drive results, LinkedIn is the best way to connect with me. I'm always interested in talking to other services people who are thinking about starting a practice or starting a business. And of course, we're always looking for great referrals if you've got marketing connections in in your world that are looking to move to platforms like Brace. I'm always open to hearing you. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. I appreciate the time.